Chapter Four of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter Four, consisting of squally weather in the Azores. High living, delirious from cheese and plums, the pilot of the Pinta, at Gibraltar, compliments exchanged with the British Navy, a picnic on the Morocco shore. I set sail from Horta early on July 24. The southwest wind at the time was light. But squalls came up with the sun, and I was glad enough to get reefs in my sails before I had gone a mile. I had hardly set the mainsail double-reefed when a squall of wind down the mountains struck the sloop with such violence that I thought her mast would go. However, a quick helm brought her to the wind. As it was, one of the weather lanyards was carried away, and the other was stranded. My tin basin, caught up by the wind, went flying across a French school-ship to Lourdes. It was more or less squally all day, sailing along under high land, but rounding close under a bluff, I found an opportunity to mend the lanyards broken in the squall. No sooner had I lowered my sails when a four-oared boat shot out from some gully in the rocks, with a customs officer on board, who thought he had come upon a smuggler. I had some difficulty in making him comprehend the true cause. However, one of his crew, a sailorly chap who understood how matters were, while we palavered, jumped on board, and rove off the new lanyards I had already prepared, and with a friendly hand helped me set up the rigging. This incident gave the turn in my favour. The story was then clear to all. I have found this the way of the world. Let one be without a friend and see what will happen. Passing the island of Pico after the rigging was mended, the spray stretched across to leeward of the island of St. Michael's, which she was up with early on the morning of July 26, the wind blowing hard. Later in the day she passed the Prince of Monaco's fine steam-yacht bound to fail, where on a previous voyage the prince had slipped his cables to escape a reception which the padres of the island wished to give him. Why he so dreaded the ovation I could not make out. At Horta they did not know. Since reaching the islands I have lived most luxuriously on fresh bread, butter, vegetables, and fruits of all kinds. Plums seemed the most plentiful on the spray, and these I ate without stint. I had also a pico-white cheese that General Manning, the American Consul-General, had given me, which I supposed was to be eaten, and of this I partook with the plums. Alas! by night-time I was doubled up with cramps. The wind, which was already a smart breeze, was increasing somewhat with a heavy sky to the sou'west. Reefs had been turned out, and I must turn them in again somehow. Between cramps I got the mainsail down, hauled out the earrings as best I could, and tied away point by point in the double reef. There being sea-room, I should, in strict prudence, have made all snug, 
and gone down at once to my cabin. I am a careful man at sea. But this night, in the coming storm, I swayed up my sails, which, reefed though they were, were still too much in such heavy weather, and I saw to it that the sheets were securely belayed. In a word, I should have laid two, but did not. I gave her the double-reefed mainsail and the whole jib instead, and set her on her course. Then I went below and threw myself upon the cabin floor in great pain. How long I lay there I could not tell, for I became delirious. When I came to, as I thought, from my swoon, I realised that the sloop was plunging into a heavy sea, and looking out of the companionway, to my amazement, I saw a tall man at the helm. His rigid hand, grasping the spokes of the wheel, held them as in a vice. One may imagine my astonishment. His rig was that of a foreign sailor, and the large red cap he wore was cock-billed over his left ear. And all was set off with shaggy black whiskers. He would have been taken for a pirate in any part of the world. While I gazed upon his threatening aspect, I forgot the storm, and wondered if he had come to cut my throat. This he seemed to divine. Senor, he said, doffing his cap, I have come to do you no harm. And a smile, the faintest in the world, but still a smile, played on his face, which seemed not unkind when he spoke. I have come to do you no harm. I have sailed free, he said but was never worse than a contrabandista. "'I am one of Columbus's crew,' he continued. "'I am the pilot of the Pinta, come to aid you. Lies quiet, senor captain,' he added, "'and I will guide your ship to-night. You have a calentura, but you will be all right to-morrow.' I thought what a very devil he was to carry sail. Again, as if he read my mind, he exclaimed, "'Yonder is the Pinta ahead. We must overtake her. Give her sail, give her sail. Vale, vale, muy vale!' Biting off a large quid of black twist, he said, "'You did wrong, Captain, to mix cheese with plums. White cheese is never safe unless you know whence it comes. Quien sabe, it may have been from Leche de Capra, and becoming capricious, avast there!' I cried. I have no mind for moralizing. I made shift to spread a mattress and lie on that instead of the hard floor. My eyes all the while fastened on my strange guest, who, remarking again that I would have only pains and calentura, chuckled as he chanted a wild song. High are the waves fierce gleaming, high is the tempest roar. High the sea-bird screaming, high the azore. I suppose I was now on the mend, for I was peevish and complained. I detest your jingle, your azore should be at roost, and would have been were it a respectable bird. I begged he would tie a rope-yarn on the rest of the song, if there was any more of it. I was still in agony. Great seas were boarding the spray, 
but in my fevered brain I thought that they were boats falling on deck, that careless draymen were throwing from wagons on the pier to which I imagined the spray was now moored, and without fenders to breast her off. "'You'll smash your boats!' I cried out again and again, as the sea crashed on the cabin over my head. "'You'll smash your boats, but you can't hurt the spray! She is strong!' I cried. I found, when my pains and calentura had gone, that the deck, now as white as a shark's tooth from seas washing over it, had been swept of everything movable. To my astonishment, I saw now at broad day that the spray was still heading as I had left her, and was going like a racehorse. Columbus himself could not have held her more exactly on her course. The sloop had made ninety miles in the night through a rough sea. I felt grateful to the old pilot, but I marvelled some that he had not taken in the jib. The gale was moderating, and by noon the sun was shining. A meridian altitude and the distance on the patent log which I always kept towing told me that she had made a true course through the twenty-four hours. I was getting much better now, but was very weak, and did not turn out reefs that day or the night following, although the wind fell light. But I just put my wet clothes out in the sun when it was shining, and lying down there myself fell asleep. Then who should visit me again but my old friend of the night before, this time, of course, in a dream? "'You did well last night to take my advice,' said he. "'And if you would, I should like to be with you often on the voyage, for the love of adventure alone.' Finishing what he had to say, he again doffed his cap, and disappeared as mysteriously as he came, returning, I suppose, to the phantom pinter. I awoke much refreshed, and with the feeling that I had been in the presence of a friend, and a seaman of vast experience. I gathered up my clothes, which by this time were dry. Then, by inspiration, I threw overboard all the plums in the vessel. July 28 was exceptionally fine. The wind from the nor'west was light and the air balmy. I overhauled my wardrobe, and bent on a white shirt against nearing some coasting packet with genteel folk on board. I also did some washing to get the salt out of my clothes. After it all I was hungry, so I made a fire and very cautiously stewed a dish of pears, and set them carefully aside till I had made a pot of delicious coffee, for both of which I could afford sugar and cream. But the crowning dish of all was a fish-hash, and there was enough of it for two. I was in good health again, and my appetite was simply ravenous. While I was dining I had a large onion over the double lamp stewing for a luncheon later in the day. High living to-day. In the afternoon the spray came upon a large turtle asleep on the sea. He awoke with my harpoon through his head, if he awoke at all. I had much difficulty in landing him on deck, which I finally accomplished by hooking the throat-halyards to one of his flippers, for he was about as heavy as my boat. I saw more turtles, and I rigged a burton ready with which to hoist them in, for I was obliged to lower the mainsail whenever the halyards were used for such purpose, and it was no small matter to hoist the large sail again. But the turtle-steak was good. I found no fault with the cook, 
and it was the rule of the voyage that the cook found no fault with me. There was never a ship's crew so well agreed. The bill of fare that evening was turtle steak, tea and toast, fried potatoes, stewed onions with dessert of stewed pears and cream. Sometime in the afternoon I passed a barrel-boy adrift, floating light on the water. It was painted red and rigged with a signal staff about six feet high. A sudden change in the weather coming on, I got no more turtle or fish of any sort before reaching port. July 31 a gale sprang up, suddenly, from the north, with heavy seas and I shortened sail. The spray made only fifty-one miles on her course that day. August the 1st the gale continued with heavy seas. Through the night the sloop was reaching under close-reefed mainsail and bobbed jib. At 3 p.m. the jib was washed off the bowsprit and blown to rags and ribbons. I bent the jumbo on a stay at the night-heads. As for the jib, let it go. I saved pieces of it, and after all I was in want of pot-rags. On August 3 the gale broke, and I saw many signs of land. Bad weather having made itself felt in the galley, I was minded to try my hand at a loaf of bread, and so rigging a pot of fire on deck by which to bake it, a loaf soon became an accomplished fact. One great feature about ship's cooking is that one's appetite on the sea is always good, a fact that I realised when I cooked for the crew of fishermen in the before-mentioned boyhood days. Dinner being over, I sat for hours reading the life of Columbus, and as the day wore on, I watched the birds all flying in one direction, and said, Land lies there. Early the next morning, August 4, I discovered Spain. I saw fires on shore, and knew that the country was inhabited. The spray continued on her course till well in with the land, which was about that of Trafalgar. Then, keeping away a point, she passed through the Strait of Gibraltar, where she cast anchor at 3 p.m. of the same day, less than twenty-nine days from Cape Sable. At the finish of this preliminary trip, I found myself in excellent health, not overworked or cramped, but as well as ever in my life, though I was as thin as a reef-point. Two Italian barks, which had been close alongside at daylight, I saw long after I had anchored, passing up the African side of the strait. The spray had sailed them both hull down before she reached Tarifa. So far as I know, the spray beat everything going across the Atlantic, except the steamers. All was well, but I had forgotten to bring a bill of health from Horta, and so when the fierce old port doctor came to inspect there was a row. That, however, was the very thing needed. If you want to get on well with a true Britisher, you must first have a deuce of a row with him. I knew that well enough, and so I fired away shot for shot as best I could. "'Well, yes,' the doctor admitted at last, "'your crew are healthy enough, no doubt. But who knows the diseases of your last port?' A reasonable enough remark. "'We ought to put you in the fort, sir,' he blustered. "'But never mind. Free pratique, sir. Shove off, coxswain!' And that was the last I saw of the port doctor. But on the following morning a steam launch, much longer than the spray, came alongside, or as much of her as could get alongside. 
with compliments from the senior naval officer, Admiral Bruce, saying there was a berth for the spray at the arsenal. This was a round at the new mole. I had anchored at the old mole, among the native craft, where it was rough and uncomfortable. Of course I was glad to shift, and did so as soon as possible, thinking of the great company the spray would be in among battleships, such as the Collingwood, Barfleur, and Cormorant, which were at that time stationed there, and on board all of which I was entertained later most royally. "'Put that there!' as the Americans say, was the salute I got from Admiral Bruce, when I called at the Admiralty to thank him for the courtesy of the berth, and for the use of the steam-launch which towed me into dock. "'About the berth? It is all right if it suits, and we'll tow you out when you're ready to go. But say, what repairs do you want?' "'Ahoy the heeb! Can you spare your sailmaker? The spray wants a new jib. Construction and repair there! Will you see to the spray? Say, old man, you must have knocked the devil out of her coming over alone in twenty-nine days. But we'll make it smooth for you here.' Not even Her Majesty's ship the Collingwood was better looked after than the spray at Gibraltar. Later in the day came the hail, "'Spray ahoy!' Mrs. Bruce would like to come on board and shake hands with the spray. Will it be convenient to-day? Very, I joyfully shouted. On the following day, Sir F. Carrington, at the time Governor of Gibraltar, with other high officers of the garrison, and all the commanders of the battleships, came on board and signed their names in the spray's log-book. Again there was a hail. Spray ahoy! Hallo! Commander Reynolds, compliments. You are invited on board HMS Collingwood, at home, at 4.30 p.m., not later than 5.30 p.m. I had already hinted at the limited amount of my wardrobe, and that I could never succeed as a dude. You are expected, sir, in a stove-pied hat and a claw-hammer coat. Then I can't come. Dash it! Come in what you have on. That is what we mean. Aye, aye, sir. The Collingwood's cheer was good, and had I worn a silk hat as high as the moon, I could not have had a better time, or been made more at home. An Englishman, even on his great battleship, unbends when the stranger passes the gangway, and when he says, at home, he means it. That one should like Gibraltar would go without saying. How could one help loving so hospitable a place? Vegetables twice a week? and milk every morning came from the palatial grounds of the Admiralty. "'Spray ahoy!' would hail the Admiral. "'Spray ahoy! Hallo! Tomorrow is your vegetable day, sir. Aye, aye, sir!' I rambled much about the old city, and a gunner piloted me through the galleries of the rock as far as a stranger is permitted to go. There is no excavation in the world for military purposes at all approaching these of Gibraltar in conception or execution. Viewing the stupendous works, it became hard to realise that one was within the Gibraltar of his little old Morse geography. Before sailing, I was invited on a picnic with the governor, the officers of the garrison, and the commanders of the warships at the station, and a royal affair it was. Torpedo boat number 91, going 22 knots, carried our party to the Morocco shore and back. The day was perfect. Too fine, in fact, for comfort on shore, 
and so no one landed at Morocco. Number 91 trembled like an aspen leaf as she raced through the sea at top speed. Sub-Lieutenant Boucher, apparently a mere lad, was in command, and handled his ship with the skill of an older sailor. On the following day I lunched with General Carrington, the governor, at Lime Wall House, which was once the Franciscan convent. In this interesting edifice are preserved relics of the fourteen sieges which Gibraltar has seen. On the next day I supped with the Admiral at his residence, the palace which was once the convent of the mercenaries. At each place and all about I felt the friendly grasp of a manly hand that lent me vital strength to pass in the coming days at sea. I must confess that the perfect discipline, order and cheerfulness at Gibraltar were only a second wonder in the great stronghold. The vast amount of business going forward caused me more excitement than the quiet sailing of a well-appointed ship in a smooth sea. No one spoke above his natural voice, save a boatswain's mate now and then. The Honourable Horatio J. Sprague, the venerable United States Consul at Gibraltar, honoured the spray with a visit on Sunday, August 24, and was much pleased to find that our British cousins had been so kind to her. End of chapter 4 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk